Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Blade Runner, a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed by Westward Studios and published by Virgin Interactive for the Microsoft Windows computer platform back in 1997. We're going to be talking about that title in just a minute, but first, as is usual, we do have a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 40. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes, or just talk about classic games or technology in general, I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT, so feel free to drop me a line. I am definitely interested in having a discussion. By the way, I probably should also mention that we do now have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Kind of did a soft launch on that around a week and a half ago, but figured it's probably a good idea to actually mention it during the show. So feel free to click through that link. I am definitely looking forward to talking with you all out on Discord as well. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we move into a pseudo-review. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or quantitative analysis or five stars or anything like that, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, even maybe 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict to determine how well the game holds up today, and to do that, we assign every game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should absolutely play those games today. They haven't aged a day. They are still amazing experiences, and you should experience them yourself. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. They're not quite Pantheon level, though, but they are still highly recommended from my perspective, especially if you have nostalgia for the game in question or you enjoy the genre in which the game exists. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. These are still really worthwhile experiences, and I do highly recommend that you play them today. Beyond our Golden Oldies, we reach the Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of, I can't really recommend these games to the broader population. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives, but for the mediocre mentions, I can't recommend them broadly to the general population. They've either aged a little bit or may have had a couple of issues to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Blade Runner. 
Blade Runner is a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed by Westward Studios and published by Virgin Interactive for the Microsoft Windows computer platform back in 1997. Before we can talk about Blade Runner the game, we need to go back and discuss Blade Runner the movie, because the two share quite a bit in common beyond the fact that they both exist in the same overarching universe. So Blade Runner the movie is a science fiction film released back in 1982 that told the story of a distant future, 2019, which in a strange twist of fate is now actually the past. But regardless, in that distant future, a series of synthetic humanoids known as replicants represented a perceived threat to human safety. These replicants were stronger, faster, and smarter than their human counterparts, though from a physical perspective, they were nearly indistinguishable from a true human being. In order to hunt down this apparent menace, an organized police force of sorts was founded with the individuals who were part of that organization known as Blade Runners. These Blade Runners were specially trained in the detection and retirement of replicants, with several unique means at their disposal to help determine whether a seemingly normal person could, in fact, be a replicant, with the primary mechanism for identifying a replicant being something known as the Voigt-Kampf test. The Voigt-Kampf test was a machine that judged the responses of an individual based on their emotional response, with Blade Runners administering a series of questions that, by measuring a series of different biometrics, could determine whether an individual was a replicant or a human. Now that would, of course, play into the overall narrative arc of the film, whereby one of these Blade Runners, Rick Deckard, was assigned to find a series of four advanced, incredibly dangerous replicants to bring them to fatal justice or die trying. The act of turning Blade Runner, which was originally based on a Philip K. Dick novel named Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, into a movie, would fall to director Ridley Scott, who you may recognize as being one of the more well-respected directors in Hollywood, having been responsible for a number of award-winning films spanning from the 1970s all the way to the modern day. Back in 1982, though, Scott was still relatively new to the Hollywood scene. He had originally worked as a television commercial and advertisement director until finally transitioning to film with 1977's The Duelists. He followed that first film up with the sci-fi classic Alien, and the rest after that was pretty much history, since Scott became a household name after the success of that film. So with Alien's success, Scott could pretty much write his own ticket, and the project that most interested him was the adaptation of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was the project that would eventually become Blade Runner. While Scott wasn't the first director to try to get that project off the ground, he ultimately became the person responsible for making the Blade Runner film a reality. Now, there has been a lot said about the significance and influence of Blade Runner across all aspects of popular culture, with the film's depiction of a futuristic cyberpunk sci-fi cityscape pretty much becoming the standard for how to visualize that kind of setting in film, television, and games. For those of you who may have played the Tex Murphy series of games, you might see Blade Runner's direct influence, because Chris Jones and the rest of the team have explicitly said in the past that the new San Francisco setting, the speeder navigation in the full motion video scenes in the game, and even Texas voiceovers can trace their roots back to Blade Runner. That's simply one example. There are countless other examples of its impact on popular culture. Interestingly, 
Despite its far-reaching cultural impact, Blade Runner was not a box office sensation. In fact, the initial release of Blade Runner underperformed significantly in comparison to projections, and there were a bunch of conflicts that arose between various members of the production crew both during and after filming that would serve to create a contentious situation. Now, I don't want to talk about every squabble or conflict that popped up, but what I do want to talk about, and what has some bearing on the rest of our story, is how the overall production for Blade Runner played out, and the various entities that became involved in actually bringing the film to market. So for those who may be unaware, bringing any creative endeavor to the marketplace often involves collaborating with a number of different groups, both from a creative perspective as well as from a funding standpoint. In the case of Blade Runner, initial funding was provided by a company called Filmways, who right before filming began decided they no longer wanted to fund the picture, so they backed out. That then led to a three-way deal between several other production companies. The Lad Company, who would eventually own North American distribution rights to the film. Sir Run Run Shaw, which was a Hong Kong company that would eventually own the international distribution rights and Tandem Productions, which was a film production company that would own all of the non-theatrical distribution rights and would later be rechristened as the Blade Runner Partnership. Between those three companies, the film would eventually complete filming and release to audiences around the world in 1982. Beyond the budgetary agreement those companies entered into, the actual lead-up to release was fraught with tension between Ridley Scott as the film's director and the production companies funding the film. When Scott began working on Blade Runner, he had a vision for his film, and he was determined to release his work to audiences. As is often the case, though, the people with the purse strings can sometimes make requests, or demands, as the case may be, related to the overall structure and composition of a film. A production company might ask a director to trim a film, or it might ask him or her to re-edit a sequence in the movie, or any number of other things. And that can sometimes lead to conflicts between the director and his or her artistic vision and the production company's seemingly uninformed demands. In the case of Blade Runner, this conflict would manifest itself in a number of different versions of the film existing and eventually being released. As an example, the original cut of the film had a relatively bleak ending, or at least certainly not a happy ending, and a lack of any type of expository details outside of what you as a filmgoer would observe in the film. The production companies thought that this just wouldn't resonate with audiences, so they mandated that the ending be changed to be a happier conclusion, and also required Harrison Ford, who was the star of the film, to record a number of voiceovers to more explicitly explain what was happening in the movie. Ford and Ridley Scott both disliked this new direction, but they didn't have much of a say in what was happening. The people with the money could ask for whatever changes they wanted, and the creative individuals behind the film pretty much had to comply. Now, I don't want to go through all of the different versions of the film that would follow, like the director's cut, the Criterion edition, or the final cut, and there's probably even more beyond that. But I mention all of this to say that the production of the Blade Runner film was anything but straightforward. A number of companies owned various rights to the film, and the overall sentiment around the film's release was overtly negative, given the deviation between creative vision and production demands. Which is to say, when the idea for eventually creating a game based on Blade Runner came about later in the 90s, it was in no way a slam-dunk kind of thing. 
figuring out how to make an interactive experience based on such a complex film production with multiple competing rights holders would prove to be anything but simple. The idea for creating a game based on Blade Runner actually came from the Blade Runner Partnership, which was the offshoot of Tandem Productions that owned the non-theatrical distribution rights to the film. They began shopping around the concept in the early 90s, going to such companies as Electronic Arts, Activision, and Sierra, none of which were sold on the deal, which to me was a little bit odd. Sure, Blade Runner wasn't the most popular movie ever made, and it didn't make the most money, but by the time the 90s had rolled around, it had attained a pretty strong cult following, and it was in the midst of experiencing a resurgence, with Ridley Scott's director's cut of the film coming out in 1992. You would think or at least I would have thought, that many game companies would be salivating at the prospect of converting Blade Runner into a successful video game. But the issue that prevented these companies from signing up was more legal and compliance-driven than anything else. Recall that the distribution rights for Blade Runner were held by three separate production companies, each of which owned certain pieces of the overall intellectual property. In order to be able to make a game in the Blade Runner universe, there would have to be some collaborative agreement made between all of those companies, at least if a company wanted to use various musical or video artifacts from the film. Beyond the hassle of trying to get three different companies to play nice with each other, there was the issue that the film's production was a contentious one, and because of the late demands placed upon Ridley Scott and the cast near the end of the film's creation, there weren't a whole lot of positive feelings to accompany the end of the production. This meant that by the time the film had been completed, discontent was so high that many individuals were a bit less careful with important records and documents than they should have been, so not all documentation related to the rights of the various aspects of the movie, like music, sound, and characters, was well kept. If a gaming company was going to take on the challenge of making a Blade Runner game, they would have to tackle and address each of those issues head-on, which for many companies was pretty much a deal-breaker. They just didn't want to deal with the burden. There was one company, however, who had no issue rolling up their sleeves and giving it a go, and that was Virgin Interactive. We've talked about Virgin Interactive several times before during this podcast, but just to refresh everyone's memory, Virgin Interactive was a video game publisher who, for a large chunk of the 90s, had a gigantic portfolio of licensed titles across a variety of different properties. If you played a licensed game in the 90s, I'd say there's probably a 50% chance that Virgin had something to do with it. Games like Lion King, Aladdin, Robocop, The Terminator, all of those and many others were licensed titles that Virgin Interactive was responsible for bringing to market. As you might expect, video game publishers can sometimes work with a variety of different game development studios, and sometimes a publishing company is so impressed with the team's work that they end up acquiring the team with the intent of being the sole publisher for their future titles. This is exactly what happened when Virgin acquired a smaller company named Westward Associates, later to be known by its much more recognizable name, Westward Studios, in 1992. Westward Studios, in some form or another, had been around since the mid-80s and had worked on a variety of titles by the time Virgin acquired them, with perhaps their most well-known release up to that point being Eye of the Beholder, which was a Dungeons & Dragons-themed computer role-playing game. After Virgin acquired the company, Westward would go on to even greater success, with perhaps their biggest hit being the creation of the modern-day real-time strategy gaming genre with the release of Command & Conquer back in 1995. 
The story behind the creation of that title, however, is a story for another day. Getting back to Blade Runner, though, Virgin would successfully negotiate to secure the rights to the film, while the act of developing the title would fall to, you guessed it, Westwood Studios. Further, it was also decided that the new Blade Runner game that Westwood would develop was going to be a point-and-click adventure game. So at this point, we should probably take a step back and talk about adventure games and the adventure game market in general. And we have talked a bit about adventure games before, and some of you may know that I am a huge fan of the adventure game genre. We also know that adventure games today are a relatively niche market, driven primarily by the emergence of other more interactive gaming experiences in the later 90s. But that wasn't always the case. Adventure games originated almost 50 years ago with the text-based game Colossal Cave Adventure, and over the years that followed would evolve from pure text to text with vector graphics to purely mouse-driven to hand-drawn graphical interfaces to full-motion video interactive movies all the way through to 3D-accelerated titles. I would venture a guess and say that adventure games, because of their long history, have experienced more technological advancement and change than many other younger game genres. And because of that technological change, game companies of the time would continually need to innovate in order to become and remain competitive in the market. And I'm not talking solely about the adventure game market, per se. I'm talking about the broader computer and video game market. The adventure game genre was probably at the height of its popularity in the 80s and early 90s, which was driven by a number of quality releases by adventure game behemoths Sierra Online and LucasArts, along with other smaller companies releasing quality experiences for gamers to enjoy. Around this time, computer technology was rapidly evolving, but was still relatively primitive, and it was the technology that drove the types of games available to consumers. Because computers weren't fully capable of intense, fast-paced gameplay with photorealistic graphics, there was a tendency to focus on the things that computers did do well, which in the 70s and early 80s meant text, and in the mid-80s to early 90s meant displaying mostly static graphic images that you could have some degree of rudimentary interaction with. So, in other words, computers were good at playing adventure games, so that's what a bunch of companies would make. Now, obviously... I am overgeneralizing the situation, as there were a number of computer games that did in fact offer faster-paced gameplay or high-quality animation or more direct interaction with the game's world. But the fact remains, adventure games were very popular. As the 90s went on, the pace of technological change continued to accelerate, and new gaming experiences were continuously coming to market. Adventure games continued to remain somewhat popular even into the mid-90s, but the term popular in this context is relative. Putting aside the phenomenon that was missed, a popular game in the adventure game genre might hope to sell a couple hundred thousand copies, which compared to other genres just wasn't all that much. Adventure games from a proven adventure game developer would sell, but there was no guarantee that a new adventure game developer would be able to attain any degree of success, regardless of the prior games they had worked on, or what intellectual property might be tied to the effort. I mention all this to say, the fact that Westwood Studios was selected to develop a Blade Runner adventure game in the mid-90s was not in any way a slam-dunk proposition. And to their credit, Westwood knew this. They had a ton of faith in themselves to deliver a quality product, regardless of the game or genre they were working on, but they also realized that in order to both break into the adventure game market 
and make it a profitable venture, they would need more than just a good adventure game. They would need something revolutionary. The team at Westwood, under the direction of executive producer Lewis Castle, who also happened to be one of the founders of the company, set out to begin working on the title. Now, you might be thinking, okay, they're going to create a simple adaptation of the film, albeit in adventure game form, meaning it'll be a traditional licensed title, for better or worse, and that creatively the team would be somewhat constrained by what happened in the movie. In this instance, though, that wouldn't be the case. The issue, which we've talked about a bit, was the fact that so many different companies held a variety of different rights to the film, and beyond the companies we've already discussed, there were other potential individuals and companies who might also be able to claim some form of ownership over aspects of the title. You might think that this would be a simple matter of referencing whatever contractual documentation had been signed on the film, which is a very valid thought. The issue there was the fact that not all documentation was well-preserved, and because the end of the film's production was just so contentious, there was significant concern that some unknown rights holder would come out of the woodwork to claim some form of legal infringement should Westward use assets from the film. So, the team was very cautious with what they could or couldn't use for the game. If they happened to use a video snippet from the film, would that open the team up to legal proceedings? If they used a musical piece from the soundtrack, could they be sued for copyright infringement? The whole situation was actually pretty tense. Luckily, Lewis Castle had a plan for how to address those potential issues. Rather than adapt the film, what if they created a related story in the overall Blade Runner universe? Rather than take any video, audio, or scenes from the movie, what if they created everything themselves using computer technology? This approach sounded like it would have merit and would avoid the legal implications the team was facing, but they needed to get agreement from the Blade Runner partnership to make sure. So, Castle went off to create a demo of the game's opening, a cutscene that would be designed based on the Blade Runner aesthetic, but wouldn't actually recreate any specific scene from the film. With demo in hand, Castle presented the idea to the Blade Runner partnership, and they loved it. As soon as the demo ended, they asked whether the whole game could be created in a similar style. If it could, then the team would have the green light to proceed. Castle confirmed that this was doable, and from that point on, the team would have their direction. Pretty much anything in the Blade Runner universe, including characters and locations, were fair game, as long as they created the assets themselves and didn't use any actual materials from the film. Interestingly, as the team began working on the game's art and design, there would be a related, albeit different, edict issued that would influence the overall game's story and visuals. Like we just talked about, the team had carte blanche to create anything they wanted to for the game, as long as the creation was done without using any specific assets from the movie, meaning the team couldn't use actual video footage or sound taken directly from the film. During early planning for the game, the team acquired the original concept art for the film, which had been designed by a man named Sid Mead. Mead was known for his work on various science fiction films. Beyond Blade Runner, he also contributed and worked on Aliens, Tron, and Star Trek The Motion Picture, along with various other contributions to futuristic sci-fi cinema. With Blade Runner, the concept art he had created was much more clean and stylized than what would appear in the final film, and that drove the Westward development team to try to figure out why that was. It turns out that during the filming of the movie, 
it was determined that Mead's vision for the film would have cost too much to create, so set designers decided to make his designs grittier and appear to have more of a lived-in look, so to speak. The Westwood team, in particular Lewis Castle, loved the aesthetic of the film, but also really appreciated Mead's original concept art. So, Castle decided to provide one final piece of overarching direction to the team. Nothing was to be created from scratch. Everything in the game would have to originate from either the film or Sid Mead's artwork. So that might sound confusing, but here's the bottom line. Every single asset for the game needed to be created from scratch, but every aspect of the setting for the game needed to be based on the film. Designing the game like this would allow Westwood to develop a title that maintained consistency with the film, while at the same time allowing for freedom in how the game's story would play out. Speaking of the story, Westwood would take a somewhat interesting approach for how to meld the movie's plot with the game's narrative. Rather than simply adapt the movie's story, the game would tell a separate narrative that took place at the same time as the movie. This would allow the team to include references to the events of the film while still telling a totally independent story, creating the sense that your character was truly inhabiting the Blade Runner universe, right alongside Harrison Ford's Rick Deckard, who, by the way, was asked early on to provide a cameo for the game, which he refused to do. He was of the belief that licensed games based on movies shouldn't even be a thing. And honestly, I'm not sure many people would disagree with that general sentiment. Other actors beyond Harrison Ford, however, would reprise their role from the film, and in doing so would drive an even greater level of consistency between the film and the game. Further driving consistency was the fact that the game's story could not, in any way, contradict the story told in the film. The game could build on and reference those elements, absolutely, but nothing in the game could in any way alter or go against the film's narrative. It was effectively looked at as gospel. So when the time came to actually compose the story, Westwood wanted to do something entirely unique. Recall that when Westwood originally decided to enter the adventure game market with this title, they wanted to create something revolutionary. Up to this point, we've talked primarily about how the settings and characters from the film were able to be utilized within the game's world. But now, I want to talk about how Westwood took that framework and the structure that's typically utilized for point-and-click adventure games and turned it all on their head. Most adventure games are designed to tell a purely linear narrative, with relatively few examples of games during this time really deviating to allow for permutations during a typical playthrough. Sure, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, that would provide three different paths through the game's story, but the ending was mostly the same regardless of which path you choose. Other games might have a couple of different endings, but those endings were based on a relatively small number of decision points in the game. With Blade Runner, the team wanted to create an experience where no two playthroughs would be alike, and to do that, they introduced a degree of randomness to the game, with specific events, replicant versus human suspects, and clues being randomly determined when a given playthrough was initiated. That might sound relatively simple conceptually, but in reality, it was much more complex. The way the game works is that in any single playthrough, you'll be presented with a pool of 15 suspects across various crimes, of which nearly anyone can be either a replicant or a human. When a playthrough starts, the game determines which suspects are replicants and which suspects are humans, which further serves to influence how each character acts in the game, what clues become available, what random encounters might play out, and which endings are available to the player. The sheer number of permutations was vast, 
And in order to test the entirety of the game, a team of testers had to play through the game 2,500 times, which is just insane to me. Now, interestingly, because of that randomness and the degree of variability from one playthrough to the next, all of the major characters in the game had to be programmed using true artificial intelligence rather than simply scripting behaviors. What I mean there is that when a character was programmed, he or she would be given certain traits, desires, behaviors, and goals, and the game engine was designed so that those characters would behave according to their constructed personality, as opposed to requiring game designers to hard-code each possible interaction. Today, artificial intelligence is much more advanced, but considering the time in which this game was created, this was an entirely new way of handling non-player character interactions. Creating the game world would similarly utilize a combination of tricks and technology to deliver a visual experience that was far beyond what most other titles of the time were capable of. We talked a little bit earlier about how technology has changed over the lifetime of the adventure game genre. When the Westward team were working on Blade Runner, 3D acceleration was just starting to become a thing in the industry, but it was still incredibly primitive compared to what it would eventually become. Westwood wanted to create a visual tour de force, a game that would capture the aesthetic of the movie while at the same time remaining playable on relatively modest hardware. To do that, the team created backgrounds for each game scene that were effectively a combination of pre-rendered images and computer-generated animation, which had the dual benefit of both looking amazing while also not really taxing computer hardware all that much. Things like advanced lighting techniques, background animations, the use of thousands of colors... All of that was able to be included in the game without requiring any sort of specialized hardware, simply because everything was pre-rendered. When it came time to create the game's characters, the team had to integrate yet another type of technology, the concept of voxels. In a typical adventure game of the time, characters would be composed of a number of sprites with various animation frames, similar to how classic consoles would handle visuals in their games. The Westwood team initially attempted to utilize sprites for their characters, but because of the level of detail included in each scene of the game, sprite artwork looked entirely out of place. So, the team turned to voxel technology, which is effectively a way of defining pixels in three-dimensional space. So let's talk a little bit about the technology here. A pixel, in graphics terms, is effectively the smallest unit of color that a game is capable of displaying. And we're not going to talk about subpixels and shading and all that kind of stuff because that's going to get super technical. But to keep it a little bit high level, a pixel is basically the smallest unit of color in a game. Nowadays, you most routinely hear about pixels in terms of television or monitor resolutions. As an example, a monitor with a 1080p or high definition resolution has a screen grid of 1920 by 1080 pixels. A voxel, by contrast, is a pixel that has depth. You could almost think of them like cubes as opposed to squares. A perfect example here is the world of Minecraft. Those blocky building blocks in the game world are a visual representation of what a voxel would look like. To better integrate Blade Runner's characters with the game's pre-rendered visuals, each character would be built using those voxels, which enabled them to blend in much better with the environments of the game, while also allowing various graphical manipulations to be performed easier and faster than a traditional polygonal engine. In fact, the degree of complexity in each character and scene was so high 
that the game would have actually ran poorer using a 3D accelerator card. The custom rendering engine that Westwood had developed worked faster in software than what would have ever been possible with contemporary hardware, which is absolutely crazy to me. Shifting our attention to music, anyone who's played the game will likely say, hey, Tony, you said that the game couldn't use any assets from the film, yet I know that there are pieces of the soundtrack that are directly from the film. What gives? So I would respond to that by saying, yeah, the game soundtrack does have pieces of music that match the music in the film. But the fact is, the music in the game was not taken directly from the movie. Instead, Westwood's in-house musician, Frank Klepacki, had to recreate any music he wanted to use from the film by ear. And he did that for major pieces from the film, while also composing a number of tracks specifically for the game, all of which were designed to capture the essence of the movie soundtrack and, once again, create the sense that you were inhabiting a place in the Blade Runner universe. Eventually, all of the various elements of the game would come together, and Blade Runner would finally be released on the market in late 1997, just in time for the holiday rush. Critics of the time would praise the game's visuals and sounds, citing that it truly felt like the game was a recreation and expansion of the Blade Runner film, albeit in digital form. A number of individuals also felt that the gameplay, especially the replayability of the title, was unlike any other adventure game that had come before it. The game would be nominated for a number of awards, including Best Adventure Game and Best Interactive Experience across several different publications, and even modern-day reviews recognized the significance of the title in bringing a fully-realized cyberpunk world to the computer game market. Gamers, similar to critics, would find a lot to like about the game, with many loving the fact that their actions could influence how the game played out. Blade Runner fans in particular were very fond of the title, as various movie references in the game made them feel like they were finally able to live in the world that Ridley Scott had brought to life on the silver screen. All told, Blade Runner would end up selling one million copies in the years following its release, earning it a reputation as one of the best-selling adventure games of all time, with sales more than double other contemporary and well-liked adventure titles like LucasArts' The Curse of Monkey Island. It was, in no uncertain terms, a major success. With all that success, you might expect that Westwood would want to work on a sequel, but unfortunately, that never ended up happening. Despite the game sales, the title wasn't nearly as profitable as you might imagine, with licensing costs eating up a significant chunk of the profits. And because of the way that the deal was structured, if Westward were to sign a follow-on agreement with the Blade Runner partnership, the licensing fees would increase even further, making it so that any sequel would need to sell multiple millions of copies in order to be profitable. Ultimately, this proved to be too risky and costly to work through, so plans for a sequel were scrapped. Regardless of the lack of a sequel, as technology continued to advance, gamers would regularly ask for a re-release of the title with the hopes that one day it could be remastered. The unfortunate thing is that the source code and game assets, like the art for each scene, had been lost during an office move, and trying to recreate the lost content was projected to cost tens of millions of dollars. Luckily for the gaming community, there would eventually be a re-release of the title on Good Old Games, otherwise known as GOG.com, that through the Scum VM engine would allow the game to become playable on modern machines. The story doesn't end there, though, as just last year, 
Night Dive Studios, a prominent company in the game remaster re-release scene, was able to use machine learning algorithms and their own ingenuity to reverse engineer the underlying code while enhancing the graphics and animation across the title. Surprisingly, this was met with a significant backlash from players, as many thought the Enhanced Edition's graphics, while technically refined, actually looked worse than the original. The blowback was so severe that Night Dive ended up having to add the original Scum VM release to their Enhanced Edition release for free, meaning if players bought the Enhanced Edition, they'd also get the original re-release, which has remained the definitive edition of the game for many gamers. Whether the Enhanced Edition is better or worse than the original is a debate for another time. But regardless, I think it's great that companies like Night Dive continue to dedicate their effort to preserving these classic titles and making them playable again on modern machines. This is not easy work, and I appreciate the fact that they tackled Blade Runner, even if their efforts weren't as well received as they would have liked. Blade Runner represents one of the more ambitious adventure games ever created. With a combination of a truly detailed cinematic landscape, randomized gameplay, and a choice-enabled narrative, Blade Runner would redefine what many thought the adventure game genre was capable of. While it entered the market as adventure games were beginning their decline, that's no reason to overlook the title. It remains well-respected amongst many gamers today, and even beyond those fans, is definitely one of those titles that deserves to be remembered. We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Blade Runner today versus when it was released approximately 25 years ago. Now, I want to start out by saying that I played the original Blade Runner PC release, but I have not yet played the Enhanced Edition. I know the Enhanced version has gotten a lot of negative press, but I can't personally comment on how it compares to the original. So our discussion is going to be focused solely on the original version of the game. So let's talk about it. Blade Runner, like we've talked about, is a point-and-click adventure game based on the Blade Runner film, which, by the way, I highly recommend you watch prior to playing the game. I had watched the film previously, but hadn't watched it for a few years at this point. But I did want a refresher before playing the game, and I'm truly glad that I did. There are a ton of references to the movie throughout the game, and watching the movie first enhanced the experience of playing the game. Anyway, in many ways, Blade Runner is a traditional point-and-click adventure game played from a third-person perspective. So let's talk about that. You use your mouse to interact with each scene. You navigate various environments, you click on hotspots, you talk with other characters, and you pick up clues along the way. Many of the game's locations have multiple screens to navigate through, and in many ways, this is almost like an open-world adventure game, and I want to explain that a little bit. So, similar to other adventure games, when you want to navigate around the world, you will access a map, and the way the map works is you pick a location, and then you will be able to use your speeder to go off to whatever location that you've selected. 
Now, the thing here is that when the game starts, each of these locations are disconnected. You have to click on one location from the map. You fly over there in your speeder. Now you're in that other location. If you want to go back to a previous location or to a different location, you have to once again use your speeder and the map to go there. As the game plays out, there are various interconnections that start appearing between these different areas. They unlock as you play the game. And what ends up happening is eventually you're pretty much able to navigate from one area to the next, even if they were separate map instances or map icons, you're able to actually navigate to those locations simply by navigating in the game world rather than using the map and the speeder. So let's talk about the biggest example here that I thought was just awesome when I encountered it. Later in the game, you will gain access to a sewer system because I believe it's contractually required that most computer and video games have a sewer level at some point in their title. Blade Runner is no different. There is a part of the game that's based in the sewers. And that particular, I'll say level, but it's really just a series of interconnected screens, actually spans the entire length of the city, which means you can navigate throughout the entire sewer and by doing so, you can pretty much navigate to any place that you would have otherwise traveled with your speeder. It creates a situation and a feeling that the world is truly interconnected. And I really enjoyed it that that happened. When that happened, I really enjoyed that fact. And I just thought, wow, there really are not many adventure games that have this degree of interconnectivity. We could look back at games before there were any sort of fast travel, like the original King's Quest was basically just a bunch of screens stitched together on a grid that you had to navigate by foot. But for games that did have a fast travel option and usually presented different options in a map, it was almost unheard of to have pretty much the entire world interconnected. Now, once again, this did not start. The game didn't start like that. You do have to progress through the game and as you unlock different areas and, and different scenes, it will eventually connect up. But I really enjoyed the fact that that happened. It just made it feel like it was a fully realized world that was just waiting to be explored. So beyond the world and the map and how everything is interconnected, the game does also use some other traditional elements of adventure games like an inventory system. But even here, it's just a little bit different because in the game, you may pick up items and objects, but you really don't have any ability to manipulate those items. So your inventory is not really about the items you pick up. It's about the clues that you gather. And you gather all of these clues, whether you pick up items or you talk to characters or you find different things in the game world, and they become clues in your inventory. And the way it works is each of those clues become aligned to one of several different currently open cases. As you play the game, you're going to have to solve multiple crimes. And each of those crimes have different clues associated with them. Some of them apply to, to multiple because the suspects are kind of the same between certain cases. But your inventory is really just a way of housing all of those clues. And within that inventory, you can revisit those clues but most of the time, you don't really get any more information about those clues when you examine them. It's just that you're able to hear the narration again when you click on one of those clues, which can sometimes be helpful if you've forgotten what a particular clue was or what a particular narration was associated with a given clue. There are, beyond just the single clue screen, there's kind of a couple of inventory-like screens that have very similar kinds of information. One of the screens is just purely clue-driven. All of the clues that you've gotten throughout your playthrough 
The other screen is organized by case. There's a lot of overlap between those two screens, though I do believe there were a couple of instances where there were items that were only accessible from one screen versus the other. So the clue inventory, it's really more for you to perform your own investigation. Once again, there are no real items to use here. It's not like you're going to have any sort of advanced inventory combination puzzles in the game. It's really just almost like a fancy autofilling notebook. That being said, the way the clues are used and organized does kind of make you feel like a detective, even if at the end of the day, the game determines how those clues eventually come together. So as is typical of most adventure games, you can interact with other characters in the game world and talk with them about various topics. Now, I do want to mention something here that you should be aware of. There's actually a section in the game settings that will influence how those choices are displayed on the screen. You can choose between a default response, a polite response, and other kinds of personality choice kinds of options. But the one that I would go for is the user choice option. That makes it so that the dialogue system behaves like a traditional adventure game where you can choose different topics from a list to ask about. I do have to warn you about one thing here, though. You got to be careful. There are some topics at different points in the game that, even though they're not depicted as a true decision point in the game, will result in certain character reactions that can set you down a path that you may not have intended. As an example, at a certain point in the story, you'll begin interacting with certain characters who may or may not be replicants. One of the topics you can choose in those conversations is simply the name Crystal. Crystal is one of your fellow Blade Runners. Seems fairly innocuous, right? You're just asking a question. You're saying, hey, what do you know about Crystal? In reality, though, if you play the game like many people play adventure games, or at least like I play adventure games, which is you're going to click through and exhaust every available topic. You may click on that topic about Crystal, thinking you're just trying to find out more information about her. But what you end up doing is unknowingly setting yourself down a path that you may not have meant to take, like becoming a replicant sympathizer. The game doesn't give you any indication of when you might be picking an option that will change the trajectory of the game. And I do think that this is an area that could have been improved. Beyond the traditional adventure game mechanics, the game adds some additional features that go well beyond what you might expect in a typical adventure game. One of the biggest ones, and one of the most in-your-face ones, is the fact that you can actually shoot suspects in this game. So it is not purely a point-and-click passive experience. You can actually shoot. You right-click your mouse, and you draw your gun. And that allows you to shoot different suspects, which may be okay if they're replicants, and may not be so okay if they end up being humans. You even have certain parts of the game where you can draw your gun, but not shoot, which might result in a different outcome, which I thought was a really nice touch. It's kind of like you could draw your gun and they, the suspect might become scared and give themselves up without a fight as opposed to shooting them and having to bring them in dead versus alive. There's also at least one point in the game, maybe two, that you're able to buy more high-powered bullets from a certain location in the game world. I believe you can only get 24 bullets of the high-powered variety. Otherwise, your main weapon ammunition is unlimited. So it's not a huge deal if you miss out on being able to buy those high-powered bullets. And honestly, I don't even recall using them much just because of the way my game played out. But the option does exist if you want to check it out. 
I do also want to talk about an interesting system included in the game called the Esper system, which for anybody who has watched the Blade Runner movie, this is the image manipulation and investigation system that Blade Runners can use to look at an image and to analyze an image and get special clues from it. So at various points in the game, you might pick up a photograph or you might receive access to an image. You can examine it. You can zoom in on it. You can uncover more clues. This particular aspect of the game is ripped straight out of the movie. It is very cool. And I would probably, I would probably say this is one of the coolest aspects of the game actually, even though it's not used extensively, but it is still really cool. And I really love the fact that it was pretty much copied verbatim right from the movie. But I will say that it is sometimes hard to determine what's a clue and what isn't outside of trial and error as you're trying to navigate those various pictures. The final element that I want to talk about, at least up front, is the Voight Kampf test. So this is, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, this is the test that Blade Runners can use to determine or to help determine whether a given person is a human or a replicant. And in the game, it allows you to ask a series of questions. Each of those questions are designed to evoke an emotional response. And you can ask from one of three different categories of questions. Kind of like the first category of questions is mostly light. It's kind of just gauging a very light kind of response. And then you have medium set of questions, which pushes things a little bit further. And then at the far end, you have these absolutely insane questions that are just absolutely crazy to ask that any human would be would react very negatively to uh, maybe the replicants do maybe they don't that could be up to their programming but regardless it allows you to try to determine if a given response feels more human or replicant and the machine as you're asking your questions will display some biometric data as far as how the responses go and it also has a meter on there that will show whether a response is trending more towards human or replicant if you do ask the right kinds of questions and the right sequence of questions, the machine will tell you whether the individual that you're talking to is a replicant or a human. If you don't pick the right questions or you don't quite get to a conclusive kind of situation, the machine will not be able to tell you. And that's going to be up to you in order to determine whether that individual was truly a replicant or a human, which can be a little tricky because it's not necessarily a cut and dried kind of thing. Once again, this feature, the Voight Kampf test, is ripped right out of the movie, and it is awesome. I loved interrogating different people, even though my particular playthrough, I didn't interrogate a whole ton of them. I loved it when it happened because it really felt like you were investigating and trying to uncover a hidden mystery behind the psyche of the person that you were interviewing. I just thought it felt really cool. The other big way that Blade Runner differs from most adventure games is in how the game randomizes certain events, which can lead to a ton of different variations throughout a given playthrough. I'm going to talk more about how I feel about that particular mechanic in just a little bit. Before we move on and start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I love seeing how different companies would market their titles, especially in the era before we had YouTube with all sorts of gameplay videos readily available on the internet, and even before we had readily available reviews on websites. Now, around Blade Runner's release, we're starting to get a little bit more into that time frame where 
information was becoming a little bit more available, so it's not quite as restricted as what we might see if we were looking at a game from the 80s or early 90s. But regardless, I still enjoy looking at the back of the box just to see how companies represent their titles to prospective consumers who may need to look at the box to see and make a decision as far as what they're going to buy that day. So, for Blade Runner, the back of the box says, Los Angeles, November 2019. Immerse yourself in the dark, gritty world of Los Angeles 2019, where you become both the hunter and the hunted. Groundbreaking real-time story structure creates a unique experience every time you play. Stunning visuals as well as atmospheric smoke, fog, fire, and rain that affect your character in real time. Rich, ambient, multi-track audio environment creates an immersive gaming experience. Continually animating full-screen, high-resolution cinematics and gameplay in millions of emulated colors. Breakthrough real-time lighting effects, directional, color, volumetric, attenuated, and animating. Four CDs packed with over 100 interactive environments, including original movie sets. Interact with over 70 motion-captured characters, all with artificial intelligence and their own agendas. Top-notch Hollywood talent from the original film, including Sean Young, James Hong, Joe Turkle, Brian James, and William Sanderson. Includes specially created cuts from the original Blade Runner soundtrack. Dramatic camera movements during gameplay heighten the Blade Runner experience. No hardware acceleration required. Step into the role of a Blade Runner by utilizing the Esper photo analysis machine, administering the Voight-Kampf replicant detection test, flying in a police spinner, and analyzing clues with your knowledge integration assistant. And then it goes into, those are just like the features, and that's the prominent part of the box. Then it does say, Westward Studios, the company that brought real-time to strategy games with Command & Conquer, brings real-time to adventure games with the science fiction classic Blade Runner. Armed with your investigative skills and the tools of the Blade Runner trade, you'll be immersed in a world that lives and breathes around you with breakthrough lighting and visual effects. Your ability to survive will be put to the test in the richest game environment ever created for your PC. And then they have some images of the game, and I've got to say the images that they pick look like they were taken right out of the movie, which is certainly a selling point. So if I saw that box, which I did when I was younger, I would say, yep, got to buy that one. <laughs> that just sounded really amazing. And the fact that they did the whole, hey, Westwood Studios did real-time strategy, and now they're doing real-time adventure games, I would have definitely said, whoa, well, that sounds interesting. I, I got to see what that's all about. So anyway, that is what the back of the box says for Blade Runner. We're now going to move on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. The game's visuals are striking, and I truly thought that the graphic artists, animators, and whomever else worked on the visuals deserve to be commended. Each and every scene feels like it came from the movie, and the quality of the graphics, especially considering this was designed to be run using software rendering as opposed to 3D acceleration, is insane. I especially loved the lighting in many of the scenes, which really created a sense of depth to the environments. It almost felt like a pseudo-ray tracing kind of effect, though I know they didn't actually use real-time ray tracing back in 1997. Regardless, the graphics, especially the environments, look superb and even hold up today. 
That being said, the character graphics are a bit lower quality than the rest of the environment, which is an unfortunate side effect of the voxel-based technology used for those particular assets. Characters look pretty pixelated, and there's definitely a bit of a disconnect with the rest of the graphics in the game, which look really good. It's a minor critique in the grand scheme of things, but it is something that should be mentioned. Now, I do also want to note that there are some cutscenes included in the game with pre-rendered animated movies that play before certain scenes. The cutscenes all looked pretty good, though they were obviously from an era where computer-generated graphics was still in its infancy. Animations are a bit stiff, and the character models aren't all that realistic. That being said, they still ooze style. They just look decidedly dated. Moving on to the sound and music. Simply, the music in the game is outstanding, with various tracks that are evocative, matches the action and scenes on the screen perfectly, and truly feels like an extension of the movie's already excellent audio. There's not much else to say about the music. It's simply a stellar noir-style soundtrack. Though there is one thing I do want to talk about, and that is the voice acting in the game. And in this one, I know we've talked about voice acting before, and it's been a little hit or miss, but in this game, it's almost universally excellent. The voice acting in the game is mixed between Hollywood actors reprising their roles from the film and traditional voice actors who specialize in voice work. And pretty much every actor in the game delivers their lines well, with only a couple instances throughout the entire experience where the acting felt just a bit out of place. Overall, though, the voice acting really enhanced the feel of the game, and I enjoyed it. Moving on to the narrative and story. While the game does tell a side story to the movie, it is itself effectively the same narrative structure as the film. You play Ray McCoy, a Blade Runner who is sent out to investigate a case involving an animal killing that may or may not involve replicants. As you play the game, you'll encounter even more crimes as your suspect list grows, eventually learning how each crime is connected before needing to decide for yourself who to bring to justice. And I've got to say, the story felt like playing an interactive version of Blade Runner, albeit with mostly different characters and an alternate set of circumstances leading you from one step to another. And for the most part, it really worked. I loved experiencing the life of a Blade Runner, and the fact that my decisions throughout the game can impact the ending was awesome. That being said, I do have a bit of an issue with how some of the scenes in the game played out, which can sometimes create a degree of non-linearity that makes certain events not really make much sense. This happened to me early in the game, when I was simply exploring the various environments available, because in adventure games, the way I play is I usually explore everywhere before trying to advance the main narrative. So I'm playing the game I just started pretty much. I come across a jail cell, and I begin to interrogate someone for a crime that I didn't even know existed, which felt completely out of place. Only later did I realize that there was a random clue that had been added to my clue inventory that explained who he was and why he was there. Without that piece of knowledge, I was left confused. My character knew something important to the game that I did not, which created a disconnect that I honestly didn't really enjoy. There are a couple of other sequence issues like this where an event happens in an order that doesn't fully make sense, and while I'm not saying it's a huge pervasive issue, it is something that detracted a bit from my enjoyment of the story. Overall though, if you like the story for the Blade Runner movie, you should like the story here. Moving on to the playability and controls, 
Generally speaking, the game remains very playable today and feels pretty much like a modern adventure game. You click to move and interact with the environment, and your mouse is similarly used to begin dialogues with characters and access your clue inventory. So overall, controls feel fine and work exactly as you would expect. That being said, I do have a few critiques about the game's structure and some of its ambitious design decisions that do play a role in the overall playability of the experience. As we discussed earlier, a good portion of the game is randomized, and that extends beyond the simple act of determining who may or may not be a replicant. That randomization can also apply to specific events in the game world. Now, most of those random events simply add flavor to the overall experience, which is totally fine and something that I really appreciated. But there are some specific story encounters, especially later in the game, that are also tied to a degree of random chance meaning you may be up to a certain point in the story and you know, like you really know what your next step is. So you go and you go to do that next step. Only the character you're supposed to find isn't there, isn't where they're supposed to be. So you think, well, okay, maybe I missed something. So you go through every other screen in the game trying to figure out what you missed, only to come back to the area with the character that you need to find and find out that that character is still not there. So you reload the screen a couple times, you walk back and forth from various areas, and then finally, eventually and magically, the character appears, allowing you to advance the story. I've got to say that I love the concept of random encounters, but I honestly don't think major story beats should be tied to random chance. It makes you feel like you missed something or that the game is broken, when in reality, it's just something you have to be lucky to encounter. For non-critical interactions, Absolutely, go for it. For major story plot points, there should be little to no randomness there, at least from my perspective. Uh, a couple other things to talk about. We did talk about this one a little bit before, but the fact that dialogue choices can sometimes inadvertently lock you into a specific narrative path without you knowing it, or with any indicator in the game showing you that you were going to make a major choice tied to a seemingly innocuous topic in your dialogue... I just find that to be incredibly problematic. I ended up playing a lot of the game in a way that I didn't entirely intend to, simply because I clicked the wrong topic at the wrong time. This is something that definitely should have been addressed. And one final critique involves the way that clues are acquired throughout the game. For the most part, it works fine. You find clues in the environment or through talking with people, and you learn more about the cases that you're investigating. Okay, cool. Sometimes, though, the narrative will progress in a direction that doesn't feel like it's supported by the clues you find, and I can only assume this might be a design issue whereby various random combinations intersect with each other to create a bit of a confusing path forward. It's not a huge deal, and it doesn't happen often, but it is something I encountered at least a couple times throughout my playthrough. So, overall, how did it feel to play Blade Runner? For the most part, Blade Runner felt great to play, with an intriguing story, an outstanding world, and fun point-and-click gameplay. It truly felt like I was a living, breathing character in the movie, and as a fan of that film, this was awesome. I also loved how ambitious the title is, with the random nature of each playthrough increasing overall replayability to a significant degree beyond most other adventure games. I also really enjoyed the addition of various tools depicted in the film, like the Voight Comp Test and the Esper Image Analysis System. 
If there was a puzzle game solely focused on interpreting Voight-Kampff tests and analyzing images for clues, I would probably be all over it. It was that good and that cool in the game. That said, I do believe some of the design decisions were a bit too ambitious, as they didn't always mesh well enough with the overall narrative to enhance the experience. In some instances, Westwood's ambitions served only to increase frustration and friction. So it's not 100% without frustration, but the sheer evocative feel of existing in the Blade Runner universe almost offsets any of the negatives you'll encounter throughout the title. So what is our verdict? Where does Blade Runner sit? Did it make it into the pantheon of classic gaming? Well, Blade Runner, I recognize, is a highly ambitious title. But it sometimes reaches just a bit too far for its own good. There is a lot to like here, but the game isn't without its faults. I admit, I've kind of gone back and forth with this one. On one hand, I think it is a quality adventure game, but on the other... I don't know that I would include it in the same breath as some of my personal favorites in the genre. I also don't think that the game will necessarily appeal to everyone, as some of the more random aspects of the experience will likely cause some players frustration. Still, for me, Blade Runner is a solid golden oldie. I definitely recommend you check it out, and if you're an adventure game player or a fan of the movie, I think you'll likely have some fun with the title. Is it for everyone? No, honestly, I don't think it is. But regardless, it's still worthwhile to experience and as such deserves its spot as the latest entry in our list of golden oldies. was our episode on Blade Runner. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, future episodes, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you. And there are a couple of ways you could reach out. I do have a Twitter account with the handle at classic gaming T. And I also have an email address, which is classic gaming today at gmail.com. So if you feel so inclined, feel free to drop me a line. I would love to hear what you all think. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the arcade basketball game NBA Jam, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize that you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast aggregation engines, and it would be great if you wouldn't mind leaving a review. This is not about bolstering star counts or harvesting a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what this is really about is trying to create the best possible podcast that we can, and the only way to do that is to get feedback from all of you. I want to make sure that we don't have any gaps, that we're delivering the content that everybody wants to listen to, and we do get new listeners every single day, so it is vitally important that we continue to get that feedback in order to make this the best possible podcast it can be. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on NBA Jam. Until then, remember, 
Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>